you for the many fine questions for this evening. I'll just take a stab at a few of them. One person asked, regarding your talk this morning on the balance between concentration and inquiry, I find that once I feel concentrated and I attempt inquiry, I go into discursive thinking. Maybe I don't understand how to do inquiry. Can you talk about this concretely? The integration of concentration and inquiry is a very beautiful exploration. Um, It isn't um, always so obvious how or what the appropriate balance is, because it may, at different times, we may need more concentration or be more engaged in an exploration of the dynamic experience of things. The danger, of course, with any how-to question or how-to practice or process is that it makes it sound like there is a specific formula that one can undertake. And it's, of course, I'm sure you're aware, much more subtle than that. But there is a um, dynamic interaction between the concentration, the calm, the samadhi that we develop, and the um, dynamic engagement with things that leads to understanding. It's worth sometimes asking ourselves how much concentration is enough? And then we have to wonder, enough for what? Do we have a standard out there for how much concentration makes a good meditation? Do we have some kind of notion as to what a concentrated state should feel like? And that we're seeking that particular feeling, wanting to feel a certain way through our meditation. More useful, perhaps, is how much is the question, how much steadiness do we need? How much... Um, calmness, how much collectedness of mind do we need in order to see things clearly? So whatever degree of, of concentration we experience, that becomes useful when it is applied to insight. This question of how to do inquiry Um, Individual teachers and individual students will have different ways of contemplating the nature of things. The Buddha offered a a sequence of five things to be mindful of when he was describing his approach to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, this mindfulness of dhammas, which both Christopher and I have spoken about during this retreat. But I want to mention the particular five approaches that he mentioned. And the first is to be mindful of the presence of things. Well, we do that, right? When there's a mental state arising, say, of, um, of... craving or something. We're mindful of that state arising. The second step was to be mindful of the absence. What is absent in experience? So there's the presence and there's the absence. How often do we give attention to what is absent? To really notice those moments in the days where the mind is not caught by the hindrances, by desire, by aversion, by reactivity. So often we notice how preoccupied our thought, our minds may be with thinking, but do we notice the times when they're not, when the mind is not preoccupied with all this discursive thought and thoughts simply arise and pass without that quality of preoccupation? So there's the mindfulness of presence There's the mindfulness of absence. Then there's also the mindfulness of the conditions that give rise to the experience. 
And then there's the mindfulness of the conditions that facilitate that that um, that lead to the ceasing of that state. And then we learn something. We learn about the conditions that lead to the non-arising in the future of problematic states. I was going to bring in the... Actually, I took it out. I just forgot to, to lug it over the Middle Link Discourses to read you that paragraph because even though the words are kind of long and the sentences are kind of long, it's kind of beautiful. Um, but those are the basic five presents, which I think all Vipassana practitioners get pretty good at. Um, but do we also notice the absence? What gives rise? What are the causes for that state to arise? What are the causes that cause it to end? And what leads to the non-arising of problematic states in the future? So if we're just working with a simple state of, of, um, of um, jealousy arising in the mind, then we can explore the presence, the absence, the causes for its arising, the causes, the conditions for its ceasing, and the conditions that give rise to the non-arising of it in the future. How to free the mind from that particular preoccupation. Now, if that's a little bit too dense, and you think, oh my God, I think I'm going to just go back to the presence, thank you. (laughs) Keep this simple. There is another system of investigation that the Buddha offered, which is really a series just of a very simple question. And it describes a kind of way of looking at experience with interest. Because with all of the systems of inquiry, what we're trying to do is just look at experience with interest. We don't need to come up with a dissertation or an analysis or an explanation of everything. We just bring an awake quality of mind to look at it with interest, to see it afresh, to see it anew, to see the dynamic changes. When we're looking for those conditions that give rise to the experience, we're not looking far into the past. We're not trying to figure out who did what to us way back when and what were all of these things that came together to create these conditions. We're just very quick, very easily, very quickly, contemplating what are the conditions that cause this arising. And very often we'll see it in our relationship to that feeling. Maybe there's a painful feeling that arises in the body, or maybe there's a painful mental state. And if we can't open in that moment to that painful feeling, then we push it away. And that pushing it away might cause an aversive state to come. So in those causes for the arising, we look not just to the distant past, although we might in that, we might in that reflection see patterns that, um, that have been repeated through our history. We're really seeing how are we relating to that experience just in these moments. So we don't need to think a lot. We don't need to have characters in the story. But we look into the experience and see, how are we relating to this in a way that is perpetuating it, that is sustaining it, or that is leading to its, um, its um, passing, its cessation? So um, you're all aware of the Buddha's um, uh, love of lists, <laughs> or maybe not the Buddha's, maybe the tradition that has, um, that, that has followed him has systematized the teachings into many lists because it makes it easier to remember in an oral tradition. So that's a nice little list of five, but there's even a shorter one, and my mind likes the shorter ones. It's easier to practice with. And it relates to another question which was asked. If not a truth... Are impermanence, not self, and suffering true? So it's um, I'm going to set aside the question of true and truth and pick up instead on impermanence, suffering, and not self. Because the 
exploration of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, is a rich area for inquiry and for exploration, for contemplation, to see this dynamic experience of change. And the Buddha asked, um, asked a student, a disciple, he asked simply, is this experience permanent or impermanent? The guy was smart. He said impermanent. Then he said, okay, is what is impermanent, can, is, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? He said suffering. And is what is impermanent and suffering, can this be said to be I, me, or mine? And he said no. So we take these three characteristics of experience, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, to contemplate how are we relating to that experience. Are we seeing it, the characteristics of it? Or are we taking it to be something other than it is? Sometimes we don't notice the impermanence of things. We might have the idea everything changes, And if somebody asks you the question, does everything change? You'll give the correct answer. Oh, yes, everything is impermanent. But it will remain on a conceptual level. The meditation practice invites a direct experience of the impermanence of things so that we really contemplate change. We notice the arising. We notice the passing. And we let the arising and passing inform us that this experience is changing. If it's changing, it can't be a basis for our lasting happiness. It can't be held. It can't be fixed. If we are not seeing impermanence, if we're not recognizing change, the tendency of mind is to become attached to things because we think, oh, I'll just get this. I'll just have this. This will last. And then when it changes, we grieve. We feel loss. We feel as though the thing betrayed us. Because we, were, we, were under the, um, we weren't seeing its characteristic of impermanence. We were assuming it to be permanent and lasting. This may be true of objects in our lives and we're devastated when they break. It could be true of relationships. It could be true of feelings. Have you had a sitting, a meditation where the mind was calm, quiet, peaceful, maybe even some joy? But then there was grief later because it didn't last. In that moment, even of experiencing joy, even of experiencing pleasure, we hadn't seen then the impermanent nature of it. And in that not seeing, identification and clinging crept in. We became attached. We can also notice impermanence and contemplate impermanence, inquire into the characteristics of things, by noticing how something increases and decreases. So we can notice beginnings and endings and increasing and decreasing as a, direct, as a way of directly investigating change, a way of taking change from a kind of a Buddhist idea into a direct perception. Now, this quality of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, sometimes translated as stress or suffering, doesn't just mean awful, dreadful pain. It can describe instead just simply the unsatisfactory nature of things. It's related to the impermanence because things, don't, things are impermanent. 
They are not a basis for our happiness. If we don't see the dukkha of things, the unsatisfactory aspect, it's very easy to become attached to things. For instance, say we want something, possibly a new car. And we have an idea of the perfect car, the perfect color, the perfect features, everything about this car. And we think that we will be happy when we get this car. And to some extent, we might be. But if we're not seeing the dukkha of it, if we're not recognizing the unsatisfactoriness, we might forget We might not be seeing the aspects that are more obvious dukkha, which is that the car isn't just a nice color, and it doesn't just have the particular features that we want. It comes with a price tag. There is going to be insurance bills to pay. There's going to be gas costs. There's going to be all sorts of other things, upkeep, that circle around it. Now, this is a very material example, but it does describe how things are not always so satisfactory. And sometimes our notion of something takes us a gloss, glosses over, and doesn't see the, um, the unsatisfactory quality of, of, of especially pleasant experiences. And so we're deluded into thinking that we can gain happiness by, becoming, by having getting, and then attachment grows. <clears throat> of course, the unsatisfactoriness that, um, the, the, that comes with pain is fairly obvious. It's a little bit harder to notice with pleasure. Now, this aspect of anatta, not-self, has been discussed in a number of different ways throughout this retreat. There was another question about not self. There were a few questions about not self. Well, we'll just have to get to it in turn. Um, The gist of the other question was, what was the relationship of um, self and other? Was other simply a reflection of self or something to that effect? And the construction of self, of a concept of self, and the construction of a concept of other are virtually the same thing. It's the same movement. It's not seeing that experience arises due to various conditions. It comes together through a collection of experiences. If there is identification with the experience, a concept of self might occur. But there is no self there to be found. In the same way, if we relate to others through a collection and identify a collection of experiences, call it other, then we have constructed a sense of the other. But is there really some boundary that creates otherness? Self and other are the same It's the same dynamic. It's the nature of duality. It's the aspect of duality that giving rise to one creates the other. They are mutually dependent. They arise due to these conditions. When we see that they arise due to the conditions, then we begin to see that that's all that they are, are phenomena of self or other arising due to conditions. There isn't like a particular... Um, enduring entity in the center of it. 
from this perspective, we no longer need to take everything so personally. I or me or mine or you or it or other. Separations, boundaries. We can relate to the various conditions that arise without needing to contain them so much. The reason that these three characteristics of experience, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, are so um, consistently emphasized in meditation practice, and there's so much encouragement to contemplate them, is because if we don't see them clearly, we are very likely to relate to experience by grasping, by trying to solidify something that really isn't solid, by having a fixed relationship to something that is in flux. So we miss, one could say, the truth of experience. Each of these, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, though, though they are described as the characteristics of things, not the truth of things. Seeing the characteristic, contemplating the characteristics, understanding them fully, are said to be the three doorways to the deathless. And it doesn't matter which door you pass through a profound insight into impermanence or a profound insight into the unsatisfactoriness of things or the profound insight into the emptiness of things. Each of those will take us beyond the very limited range of trying to find happiness in things that can't provide it. So we nurture an inquiry into anicca, dukkha, and anatta so that we can discover these doors to the deathless, so that we can pass through one of those doors and realize something that is not just contained and limited and fixed in my relationship to this thing. I have an interest in pursuing a spiritual path. Does one need to go to India or Thailand and study with the guru for many years? Can one reach self-liberation in North America with a dedicated practice? Can one still work and be engaged in normal activities? That wasn't defined exactly what that was, but um, at the same time, what is a normal activity? Do they not do normal activities in monasteries? Um, Yes, of course. Um, There is um, no reason at all why one should have to get on an airplane and go someplace else to experience freedom. It would be a very strange condition to realize the unconditioned, to have to have a plane ticket and a visa. Um, However, should you want to go to India or Thailand, do go. Many of you have. Many of you have been there. And there are some wonderful advantages for traveling. We set a lot of our patterns aside, a lot of our roles and our responsibilities, a lot of the things that keep us caught in very tight patterns day in and day out, hour by hour, day after day. And just by getting on a plane and going to another place, we drop a lot of our personal baggage. And we ask ourselves, we invite ourselves to open to things that are different, 
that are not controllable, that are not how we expect them to be, that are not how we want them to be. So we put ourselves in a very beautiful um, and conducive condition for um, freeing the mind just by getting out of our house, by getting out of our culture, by getting out of our pattern, by getting out of that little, little cycle. But that isn't to say that it isn't possible to, be, to free the mind within that cycle and to continue to do our activities. Um, my guru was a, 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 a layman. He had a family. He, had, um, he was a mining engineer, and he was in the army before that. I mean, he lived a, I guess it would be a normal life. I don't know. Um, he, you know, a full life, a full life. Um, there's nothing that's, there's no reason at all why one has to abandon um, um, anything that we can, that, anything in, in life in order to realize the end of suffering. We look instead to see where is the clinging, where is the ignorance, where is the grasping, and we free ourselves from that rather than free ourselves from um, uh, cooking or from cleaning or from driving or from going to work or from speaking, or from talking, or from this or that. The forms are not the problem. The activities are not the problem. The things that we do are not the problem. But how do we relate to those? What is the problem? Why do we not experience a free and liberated life each and every day we wake up, get on the freeway, and go to work? Maybe some of you do. What would it be to go through our daily routine in complete ease and freedom? What would be present in that and what would be absent? I don't have the quote with me, but there's a quote I quite like um, from Ramana Maharshi where he says, she so was asked pretty much the same question, and the person and he's responded that um, if you go from the household life into um, the renunciate life, if you carry with it the idea of becoming a renunciate, then you're equally trapped as having the idea of being a householder. So free yourself from that identification, free yourself from that notion and then experience freedom in any activity that you do. But still, if you're interested, we can talk after the retreat and give you a few suggestions of where to go. If everything has no enduring quality, only emptiness, what difference does it make if we are in the past, present, future, our stories seeing a sunset, sunrise, or tasting an apple? Is it all just an illusion? Interesting. What difference does it make? What difference does it make to who? As long as we're alive, we go through all these activities. We see sunsets and we see sunrises. We see clouds, we see rain. We taste food. We have thoughts about the past. We have thoughts about the future, memories, plans. We experience the present moment. Emptiness doesn't imply the absence of experience. It implies the absence of one thing, ignorance. The ignorance that conceives of experience through attachment. The ultimate truth When we speak of the ultimate truth, we often speak about emptiness and the deathless and Nibbana and 
big, big grandiose words that inspire some people and terrify others. Um, but the Buddha spoke about two truths. He spoke about relative truth and um, ultimate truth. On the relative level, does it matter what we do? Does it matter what we do? There was another question that relates to this. What is karma? From the perspective of relative truth, there are conditions that give rise to experience. There is karma, patterns, conditioning. We have an intention that affects an action. That action makes it more likely in the future to experience that, that those, those same patterns or those similar patterns is conditioned by it. So the, the result is, has a, has, is, is a conditioned effect of causes that come together and create a result. However, it's a lot more complex than that. In fact, the Buddha said that one of the things that would drive a person crazy if they thought about it too much was the intricacies of karma. We can't figure out exactly how it works. We can't figure out exactly why my toe hurts right now. Did I kick somebody when I was two years old and now I'm experiencing the karma? Or was I a a cow in a previous life and I hit somebody with my hoof, you know, whatever. You know, people can come up with all kinds of stories to try to explain experience now, trying to use these ideas of conditioning and karma. And I think all of that is just a fabrication of the mind. But karma implies this process of conditioning, and that is important to look into. I think it matters. I think it matters how we use our mind, what intentions we bring forth into action, what it is we condition, how we live together in community and harmony, whether we live kindly or whether we live cruelly with each other. It matters. It matters if we live compassionately and act out of motivations to help or if we, if we live cruelly and act out of motivations to hurt. Whatever our conditioning and our patterns are, we have a tremendous um, ability to intervene into those patterns with mindfulness, with the training of meditation. We do a lot in these practices to, as Christopher was speaking about today, to develop conditions in meditation, through meditation, through spiritual practices, conditions that are conducive to insight, Conditions that free the mind, free the heart from the burden of conditioned, of, of past baggage. So whatever our conditioning is, we need that conditioning in meditation. That's why it's sometimes really hard to sit here in the meditation hall. You know, it's actually pleasant. It's a beautiful place. The cushions are fairly soft. It's fairly quiet. The air is not too hot, not too cold. If we really thought about it, there really isn't a lot that's difficult about being here. Except when we sit down, we get our karma. Well, we get it all the time, but we notice it more. We get our patterns. We sit down and we discover our own minds, doing the things that our minds have been patterned to do. And sometimes that is painful. And so it takes tremendous courage to continue to face that mind and to discover a new way of relating to it, a way that shifts the pattern, a way that sees it freshly, that develops something different, that allows a different response, maybe a response of mindfulness, maybe a response of sensitivity, maybe something as simple as every time our knee hurts, we get angry. And so we learn instead that there's a possibility of instead of developing anger in relationship to pain, that we bring softness to it, we bring tenderness, we bring kindness or compassion. That is a huge shift. 
I think, in the karmic stream of things, in our conditioning. I think that's important. I think it matters. From an ultimate perspective, from an ultimate perspective, maybe maybe it's rather inconsequential. But from a relative perspective, from the relative truth, that conditioning, that karma matters. So I think in our practice, we, um, we have a balance and a value for both relative and ultimate truth. We don't um, privilege um, one at the complete exclusion of the other. And we work with uh, both aspects in our practice. Oh, this one's an easy one. The other one was that one. Well, that's a long one. That one I got. Can you please quickly tell us if there are any benefits of not using a cell phone during a silent retreat? (laughs) Well... One is it'll save you from frustration because it's pretty hard to get a signal out here. <laughs> so one benefit is save yourself the suffering of, of a failed attempt or a partial conversation. Or, um, but more, um, more importantly than that, I think this question asks about, um, about silence and relationship. Because often it's through the cell phone that we feel a connection to people, to those that we love, to those that we interact with, to those that we work with, to our projects, to our plans, to um, all the various things that are going on in each of our individual lives. And there's something very beautiful about all of those connections. And there are times and moments when something is... um, uh, uh, critical going on at home. Maybe you're caring for somebody who's very ill, and it's important that they be able to reach you or that you be able to reach them. And that's why we have Ruby here. <laughs> so she can help you get to the phone in such, an, in such a moment. We are actually not isolated here. There's, you know, we have electricity. We have all kinds of things. <laughs> Sometimes we'll feel isolated because we're sitting here with our eyes closed, but we are not isolated. <laughs> there are like cars here and everything. Um, one of the beautiful gifts that we can give to ourselves by taking some time of silence is to unplug ourselves from all of those connections for just a little while. I mean, I don't know how many of you live with things on all the time. You know, the, the, all these equipments and, you know, all the stuff. It's like the house gets connected to the whole world all the time. And whether it's our cell phones or our computers or our, all these other various things, pagers, it's like when can we just pause and reflect on that? reflect on who we are, reflect on how we're interacting. If we're continuously, day in and day out, pulled into relationships, roles, responsibilities, when are we going to be able to reflect on our patterns to know whether these are something that we want to continue? Most of us need a little while now and then to unplug ourselves from this um, barrage of um, forces that keep us relating to people, projects, and things in the same way. And so we take a little time out. It's not a lot of time out. It's just a week. It's just a pause. It's just a chance to take a breath and to kind of stand on the earth without interacting as the daughter, as the mother, as the lover, as the uh, worker, as the... Um, all of the things that we are to other people in our lives. 
So we get another perspective when we take a moment just to not keep sustaining that, um, not keep filling those roles. I hope you enjoy a week without a cell phone. (laughs) I had a couple of years without a cell phone. If you just want like some cheap bliss, Just give up your cell phone for a couple of years. It is truly lovely. It's really lovely. And there's still plenty of telephones out there, you know. It's like anytime I wanted to make a call, I could, but I wasn't at the beck and call of everything all the time. And so I encourage you to enjoy that aspect of this retreat. Is enlightenment the same as knowing, understanding, or non-duality? Now I suppose I'm going to have to define these terms, huh? Enlightenment. Different teachers will define enlightenment and use that term differently. So as you practice with different teachers in the spiritual world, even different Buddhist teachers, you might have to be, be sensitive to what it is they're actually referring to with the term enlightenment. I rather like a rather strong definition of enlightenment. In one discourse, the Buddha described enlightenment as the complete eradication of greed, hate, and delusion. I think it's a really worthy goal. And I think that's going to keep me busy. And I love that, um, that, um, the strength of that. Because then there's no sense of just saying, oh, I had this insight and now I'm done. No stopping short when we sense the potential of really freeing the mind from all the forces of of greed, of hate, and delusion. So for the purposes of this question, let's take that as the definition of enlightenment. But then that said, the Buddha described a sequence of steps, which are called the stages of enlightenment. And then we think, oh no, the ultimate experience has relative stages. It gets very confusing. But the um, first stage of enlightenment is what many people will describe as enlightenment. And people might say this as an enlightenment experience. And it's a radically transformative experience. It really changes. really changes how we perceive things. It transforms our consciousness. It, it, has, a, it has a deep effect. Um, and this first stage of enlightenment is characterized by the abandoning of personality view. Well, since Christopher doesn't believe in personality, <laughs> we can consider what is this that we abandon. Often we have a notion of who I am, and we take that to be quite solid, quite real, and we do a lot of things in life to um, fluff it up, to dress it nicely, to polish it, to present it, to frame it, and believe in many ways that this is who we are, that we are the personality. So one of the first, one of the characteristics of this profound insight into the emptiness of personality um, involves really a transformative understanding of who it is we take ourselves to be. Now, this doesn't mean that the sense of I might not arise later because conceit, this I am, this or that, just the comparing mind, isn't abandoned until the fourth stage of enlightenment. So, But there is a transformative um, insight that occurs that marks this first stage, which is really seeing clearly what... what, um, Um, how personality cannot be called self. 
So the, 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 the pattern of I, we, begin, we still use I, but it's used fairly conventionally. And as soon as we then turn the mind to look at it, we go, oh yeah, yeah. And there's no defending it, there's no um, uh, supporting it, there's no trying to say, oh, but, and arguing for this self. Because the insight has so affected consciousness that as soon as we bring mindfulness to the formation of self, we recognize what it is. We see it just as a pattern of grasping, and we know it to be not self. So this is an, uh, an, an important insight. There's also an insight into um, a clarity of what of of the, of what of the path, because we. It's said that we free the mind from attachment to rites and rituals. So we're not attached to a certain way of doing the practice, a certain way it has to be done. This way is good and that way is bad. It has to be this way and not that way. We free the mind from, um, from this attachment to practices. It doesn't mean we don't engage in practices. We can use them skillfully, but there isn't the attachment to it. There's the attachment to rituals, to methods. And then um, the, other char- the other characteristics of this stage is the freedom from doubt. Doubt in the possibility of enlightenment in particular. So there's a, a, a powerful um, cluster of experiences that many people call an enlightenment experience. Um, and the, the feature of it that might be the strongest is this profound insight into the emptiness of personality view, the freedom from that constraint of taking of a very limited view of self. So is enlightenment the same as knowing, understanding, or non-duality? These terms kind of intermix with each other, but no, it's not the same. Um, Knowing. See, to answer that question, I then now have to define consciousness. I maybe throw in awareness. So this like one term kind of links to another. Maybe the essential um, question in this is really what are we doing this for? What are we practicing for? What is the potential here? Is it just a clear state of knowing that we might get when we have a really deep meditation session and then we step out of the hall and it's like everything is clear and there's this moment of understanding, but then it passes. What are we doing this practice for? What motivates you? What inspires you? Where do you sense this practice leading? Where the, pra- the question, where does the practice lead, is not the same as what am I going to get out of it. We have to watch the mind that wants to um, quantify and get something. Now, you'll probably be asked that question when you go home, and somebody who has never been on a retreat will ask you, and what did you get out of it? <laughs> Which I always think is the funniest question. When do you ever get something out of a retreat? <laughs> Hopefully you lose a little. Abandon a little. Free yourself from some, some burden. Set something down. Some people find the language of enlightenment to be very inspiring. And again, this is another term that some people find quite frightening and feel like the term itself is so above the head, above the heads, that there's like, well... Where is what is there for me in this practice? Um, when I when I see a question like this, I, I like to just contemplate. Well, what is my aspiration? And I guess I'd like to ask you to just contemplate for a moment. What is your aspiration? What do you really deeply want?
Let's have some quiet time together. Thank you for your attention. It's just 8.25 now. There'll be a sitting in 35 minutes at 9 o'clock and another sitting at 9.50. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.